14 minutes it is after 7 p.m. We kick things off st- by heading straight to the markets. And, of course, markets closed just uh, two uh, hours and 14 minutes ago. But uh, I guess for all intents and purposes, a very, very difficult Monday. Uh, unless uh, much of your money is out in Brent crude oil. And uh, we see uh, Brent crude oil prices firmly above the hundred dollar, hundred US dollar barrel mark, and uh, that's certainly going to have a massive impact on what we're going to be paying at the pumps because all of the nice relief that uh, the two former trade unionists from Gala had uh, conjured up for us come to an end at the end of this month. Zulak Mguni, Chief Investment Officer and co-founder at Benguela Global Fund Managers, is my guest tonight. And what do you make of that, Kwabe? All of our relief uh, from uh, the fuel levy uh, to try and cushion us in terms of all of that's happening in Ukraine and Russia uh, seems now to be coming to an end. Ah, seem to, okay, have lost uh, Kwabe there. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, uh, a lot of people saying, look, we might see because I think the cushion room might be around one rand and fifty cents. So if there's a two rand increase, as some people are suggesting, uh, in the petrol price, uh, we might see petrol prices hovering above twenty-five rand a liter. Yeah, let me say that again: twenty-five rand a liter. Now I don't know. I, I think people in uh, Abba Glacier. I'm, I'm even talking to you know Abba Ban Glacier guys in terms of um, working from home and so on uh, because indeed I mean 25 rand and uh, 35 cents or more at the pumps per liter certainly not going to make a lot of sense but uh, yeah Zulake Mguni is on the line Zulake I want us to start at the pumps man I, 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 I certainly <laughs> hope we're done with our gremlins on the lines because hey we're going to have to be using these lines a lot more man how are you doing? I'm good. I and good evening to your listeners. Yeah, good evening, and thank you so much. I was saying to our uh, listeners, look, the markets closed just off well two hours in about uh, fifteen or sixteen minutes now, and uh, probably not a good day for for most on global markets, but uh, also the rand a bit weaker. But I must say, Budi, if you are in the Brent crude oil space, uh, that price <laughs> firmly above hundred US dollars a barrel, and uh, we might be paying a lot more at the pumps. No, certainly. Uh, I think uh, the the situation in Europe is predominantly a key driver of that. Uh, I think, uh, but but I think uh, if one looks a little further out, probably the economy would sort that issue out. The global economy would sort that issue out because I do think that we are headed in a direction where there could be weakness in global economy, and that weakness might actually reflect in demand for. Uh, consumer goods, mm. and that would include energy as well. So, so I think if you look one year out, I would say unless something goes horribly wrong on the war in Europe, I, th- I think we probably would be looking at slightly less oil, oil price than, than what we have today. But if this conflict continues, Kwabe, um, I think many people are asking themselves, not only if we can shoulder what we might be paying at the pumps, because I guess that might be, you know, uh, I guess dealt with somehow if prices normalize and we see some ceasefire dialogue and all of those things. But we know the nature of consumer goods prices that they're sticky. You know, if the if the price of the taxi fare goes up by five rand or if, you know, the price of sugar or coffee goes up by a certain price, the likelihood of it going down again is <laughs> zero. Is zero. It doesn't. <laughs> that, that's what is inflation. They, they climb higher, but uh, they climb higher on the basis of 
rising costs. When costs come down, they keep the margin. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, all of these smart people say it's sticky. The prices are sticky. And I never could understand. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean the prices are sticky? Why weren't they sticky when they had to go up? But, Kwabe, I mean, just the other reason I guess uh, I was trying to mention to the listeners earlier was um, a few weeks ago, you know, the two former trade unionists from Tala, um, you know, the finance minister and the mineral resources and energy minister, respectively, uh, Minister Kodongwan and Minister Mandashe, came forward with a proposal. And the proposal was to say, look, let's let's cushion South African households and firms um, because a lot of this volatility is not of our own doing. It's externally brought on. Uh, let's see if we can't suspend just a few levy um, and give people some breathing room. It seems that relief now, it's a done game. Yeah, it's expiring at the end of May. And if there is no replacement relief, mm. that would add uh, 152 as the price of fuel. And uh, if, if you also add the fact that uh, the rent has weakened and the oil price is higher, as you quite correctly pointed out, certainly we, we are headed for a very big number on the, on the price of uh, petrol. Mm, mm. And of course, so, so, yeah. I mean, the, the estimates are around uh, 25 rand if everything uh, else come, comes into place. So we have the the 150 coming in and two rand uh, plus or minus on the on the oil price uh, rise, rand oil price. Uh, you're gonna get three rand fifty. You're gonna end up at about 25 rand fifty. So so that could be uh, quite a heavy burden on the consumer. Mm, mm. The implication, of course, as I, I think we were earlier mentioning, is the domino impact on prices of everything uh, because of how much road, I guess, freight is behind all of the goods we interact with every day. And I think that's well established. I mean, the example I was making of the taxi fare earlier. But somebody else who's probably going to be watching that very, very closely are our friends at ESCOM because uh, it seems they are running ESCOM more by diesel than by coal at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to apply for an even bigger increase next year. Sure. You say they must be awarded a higher uh, uh, electricity increase to NERSA. Uh, as they, I mean, they will, they're going to use quite a lot of uh, diesel, or at least in value terms, maybe not in, in volume terms. But we have it to the winter. They will definitely uh, be using a lot more. And uh, I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite a tough time for the country, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we know the ripple impact. We know what it's going to mean for interest rates. We know what it's going to mean for second, third, and fourth round effects on almost any and everything. So, yeah, tough times ahead, uh, Kwabe. But, um, I mean, I guess let's stay out in Russia and Ukraine because I guess that's the uh, eye of the storm. That's what's caused all of the problems that we're going to be feeling and experiencing in so far as our wallets are concerned and what we pay at the pumps. Uh, but also, it seems Renault. Now, uh, I understand Renault was Renault-Nissan at some stage, French-Japanese, um, and of course had a massive joint venture out in uh, Russia as well with a former state-owned, you know, former Soviet automotive uh, producer. It seems now they are kind of leaving Russia, but not leaving Russia. Yeah, it looks like they they are handing over their shareholding in... Uh, Renault Russia, I think the company was called 
stores or something. Uh, I didn't, I didn't quite uh, get the name, but they, they basically will be leaving uh, Russia and they handing their their shells into the to the states. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those where there was a lot of pressure on them to basically exit uh, the the country and they can buy back uh, after six years. I think they're trying to appease their their French uh, background and maybe they they, they can come back uh, after six years. I think that's what they, they argument is. So, so this sounds very familiar. I mean, um, I think many people from the Quebec part of the world will remember. I think General Motors did something similar here. I mean, um, when they left South Africa uh, during the death standstill in 1985, um, yeah. they kind of, I don't know if they put a, a similar option in place because in this case, they, you know, Renault saying, we might come back, give us at least six years. And then within that six years, we have an option of resuming our operations if conditions change. My recollection is that General Motors did something similar as well, yeah? You, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, they, 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 that, that's a model that's been used uh, by some uh, auto manufacturers in, in the country. And I think uh, Renault had quite a nice foothold in that, that market. And also, not only a foothold, but they were able to produce there and export to other regions within uh, Europe. And the cost of production was relatively attractive. So, so exiting that market and leaving the door open to be able to come back is probably more of a, a, a consideration in future to say, can we get some uh, low cost of production benefit? And I think if the ruble deteriorates, that it has recovered now, but if it deteriorates in future, it might still make sense that uh, when things normalize, you want to go back because the, in Europe terms, your cost of production will be significantly lower uh, in Russia. And I, and I guess, I mean, that's that's the other dynamic. Uh, how much, I mean, the big message that has certainly come out of the Kremlin is the sense that we are resilient, we can adapt. If the EU isolates us in the manner that they want to isolate us, we're not phased. Um, I mean, this is now, I guess, a big example of an automotive player who has decided to opt out of a JV they had with a Russian player. How big a symbolic, I mean, we can talk about, I guess, the business thing because, you know, there are already other Russian brands that were being produced uh, with the assistance of Renault. So it might not be as big a shock, but symbolically, how, how big how big is this for the Kremlin? Look, I, I, and I like the word that you use in symbolic. And, and it, it's a significant message uh, that has been sent out, uh, but also to appease the politicians back at home in France. But, but I think there's one thing that uh, maybe the, the Russians haven't taken into account. So mm. you're going to keep the production running. Who's going to buy that because the economy is falling apart? Uh, so who's going to buy that production that you're producing? And secondly, uh, you can't export any of that production. Maybe uh, they can come to a deal with China. But uh, that, that might be the, the dilemma that they are faced with. So you're going to basically produce to stockpile rather than produce to sell and get cash inflows. Hmm. Yeah, eh? one of those things that uh, I guess uh, are part of this unfolding drama uh, out uh, in that part of the world, and uh, it's certainly having an impact on many of us. I mean, I uh, saw a story today, Kwabe, Sri Lanka's run out of petrol, edible oil prices, the leading story on the weekend, uh, set 
to draw the attention now of the authorities because they're saying I bona le fish oil. Why, why is it going up so? <laughs> why is it going up so fast now? Uh, now that uh, Indonesia has said all of these things, and I think uh, maybe just before we leave the story, all of these, I guess, very much a sign of the times and how one crisis can certainly be transmuted um, under globalization into places very, very far from, uh, I guess, you know, where Russia and Ukraine are. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, one of the things about the fish oil is that the, the Black Sea region mm. was a major producer of wheat and sunflower. Yeah, uh, Ukraine yeah. side of, of the uh, area was more uh, sunflower. And now that those things are not going to be produced, uh, at least not uh, in the same volumes, I think there's going to be a big shortfall. And I think countries are running around, basically trying to stockpile things. I mean, this morning, I think India said they won't be exporting wheat mm. uh, unless it's already contracted for sale. But other than that, they're not actually very keen to, to, to export wheat anymore because they had like a hot summer, but partly... Uh, they're trying to prepare themselves for what yeah. could be a difficult period of uh, shortage. So this globalization is real. And I think when it was implemented, it used to be thought of it is an efficient way of uh, running the global economy. Mm. But it seems like uh, it's creating a bit more uh, of a, a, a chain reaction. Yeah, indeed. And a lot of headaches, a lot of headaches coming with uh, the contagion of chain reaction, as you say there, uh, Kwabe. Talk about headaches. Uh, yeah, I guess the management team at Ubank certainly has a big regulatory headache on their hands. Curatorship. The last time we heard that, it was in the case of uh, VBS, and I think African Bank also went under curatorship as well. What's happening here? Yeah, so so, so the Reserve Bank put out a statement earlier today saying that uh, they've been monitoring Ubank, uh, and Ubank is a bank that is associated predominantly with the mining communities. Mm. And they say they've been monitoring it in terms of their compliance with the Banking Act. And it looks like uh, they've been struggling to, to, to meet the, the compliance uh, requirements, particularly the regulatory capital. And they've now decided to put it under curatorship. And I mean, again, if we take a step back. Basically, banks are predominantly funded by depositors. So sure. they lend money that is not theirs. And what then happens is uh, the bank owners put a little bit of equity and the, the rest comes from the deposit. So when things become tight, uh, what what you want as the, the reserve bank is to ensure that the depositors can, back, can get their money back. So, so you need a structured process of unwinding the loan book. So you're going to get money being paid and you're going to make sure that you don't lend out uh, unless, I mean, there's an situation, but you don't lend out so that the money comes in and you can release money back to the depositors in a, in a structured and safe manner. Uh, otherwise, what happens is the money gets lent out because they're thinking that they can make more money uh, by lending the money out, but then maybe they're going to uh, be reckless this time because they're desperate. And because of that, they could end up with uh, uh, losing the depositors' money, and then you're going to get a big, big problem with uh, with, with the bank. Mm, mm, mm. And I guess that these are all the safeguards that they probably want to put in place in case there is some sort of disaster, or in case all of us decide to call in our money. Correct. So, so I mean, the, they did say that uh, out of the total liabilities of the bank, uh, 
uh, about retail depositors are ninety eight percent. So it's quite a, it would have quite a big shock wave in the lower LSMs of of the of the economy. I mean, the, the people who are, are struggling, they would be hit quite hard because it's mo- most of that money that is there in the deposit is basically their money. That would be a similar effect to, to VBS. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they did say that it remains liquid, so it's not like there is a run, but they they actually wanted to make sure that they have to protect their, their, their depositors because otherwise they would need to, to put in some money to, to bail out the depositors. So, so then, I guess the other dynamic is for for some of our listeners who might not be aware, who is Ubank? Um, I mean, in the bigger scheme of things, whenever we talk about the banks, we seldom talk about them. Yeah, so so I think Ubank, uh, if I'm not mistaken, used to be called Tepa uh, Bank. Oh, Tepa Bank, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it was the old mining bank, mm. and, and I think we used to have branches in. The Sea Sky, Trans Sky, Lesotho, mm. uh, those type of regions, uh, and it was predominantly a bank that supported the miners. So it was a means for them to send money home and their families to access their money from the other side. And so, so it's been it's been there for quite a long time, and I think it started to transition. But I think I think it's it's tough running a bank. It's 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 quite tough. Uh, if you don't get the right product mix. Uh, and I think the, the Reserve Bank did say that they had been told to kind of look for ways to diversify their banking products to be able to, to, to run a sustainable business. But it doesn't look like that strategy worked out uh, mm. quite well. So they, I mean, if you're getting a small margin when you diversify your bank, for example, if you could give uh, higher-earning uh, 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 loans. So if you give a credit card, it's a higher earning compared to a a a, a fixed deposit, for example. So so those type of things uh, would actually mean that their margin becomes very small. And if you have the infrastructure, as their market is kind of lower end, they need that uh, branch infrastructure. And if you have that infrastructure, it's quite costly. And you'd actually... Uh, uh, run out of margin fairly quickly because you're taking the margin, you, you're funding all these uh, mm. operations, but you don't have other, other banks have got what is called non-interest income, which is significant. Exactly. So fees and commissions exactly. and, yeah. and uh, uh, other other fees, for example, where they could be selling an insurance that is underwritten by another insurer. Mm. They then generate a fee from there and make money out of it. So they didn't get to that stage by the looks of things. And that is what has created a bit of, of a problem for them. Yeah, and I guess this point you're making around non-interest income uh, is also what shifts this idea that traditional banking, you can't just bank by taking depositors' money and then on lending it anymore. You kind of have to sell airtime, have to make more on bank charges, have to invest some of that money, have to have multiple... I mean, they even call it what value-added services now. So sell electricity, yeah. sell airtime, you know, sell life insurance, cover, all manner of things, you know? Correct. Uh Send an email and pay 150 right. uh, confirmation email. <laughs> or, or you pay for your statement to say, Hi guys, I bank with Zuelaka's bank. Please send me a confirmation that says I bank with Zuelaka's bank. And then they ask you, which account do you want us to uh, take this money from? <laughs> Quabe, it's tough, my brother. But 
I guess somebody who might uh, be smiling contentedly at this stage, Mteto Nyati, uh, his uh, swan song, if I can say that, of course, uh, his uh, parting annual results uh, for the year ending February 2022. We know in the next few weeks or so, uh, his tenure out at Ultron ends. Before we get into the numbers, talk to me about the Ultron Mteto Nyati arrived to and the Ultron that he now, I guess, will be handing over to his uh, successor. Yeah, uh, he arrived to a Ultron that was uh, quite fragmented initially. Uh, I think they used to have uh, Altex, yes. uh, which had some packaging businesses in it, and uh, still and very it much like it was still very much Bullfenter's thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and they they also had what was called PowerTech, which used to make transformers. Yes. Uh, it, yes. Uh, and they had um, uh, a number of other smaller businesses. And what he did uh, uh, quite quite successfully, so he consolidated the business, took out Byte, which was their IT services business, yes. uh, and and consolidated all these businesses and created a, I think he had a strategy, say one Ultron uh, strategy, where there was different teams that were selling to different uh, 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 customers, and he created one, put everything under one umbrella, and saved a lot of costs on that, and then expanded into managed services and security solutions. So, so he did actually achieve quite a lot in a short space of time uh, uh, during his time at at Altron. And uh, I guess the Ultron that now puts out this set of numbers, um, I guess for all intents and purposes, good showing. Operating income up 34.2%, just shy of half a billion. Revenue up 5.7%, just shy of 8 billion there. Um, and uh, I guess uh, also sharing out a very generous dividend policy on the back of some of the disposals they've seen. You spoke about bites, uh, but also I guess some milestones for the Ultron Arrow business. Which now becomes a half a billion rand business. Yeah, no, no, uh, they've done extremely well in in, in many areas, uh, and uh, I mean, even Netstar uh, has grown uh, quite decently, and they they seem to have uh, to be getting some traction in Australia, uh, and uh, the fintech business is also doing quite well. Uh, they they were up four and a half percent. And the health business, which the old bite switch, uh, that, that also uh, did relatively well. So he's certainly done uh, quite well to have a focused business where he separated things where they are a partner to the big uh, tech companies and also the things where they own the technology and the IT. And he seems to have uh, streamlined the business very, very well uh, over, over this time. Mm, mm. And I guess, you know, the other big element I see here, a lot of, I mean, if I had to do a control F search and just search annuity revenue, I mean, they say a lot yep. about that in this in the set of annual results. For many of the business people listening to us, wh- what is annuity revenue and why is it so important uh, to Altron's business model at the moment? So, so annuity, annuity business is essentially... A, a business that has repeat revenue. You don't always have to go hunt for sure. a rent of, of, uh, of sales. So if you're selling sugar, you sell sugar today, and then you have to wait for another sale. 
uh, in annuity revenue is repeat. So the examples of that are these businesses, what, what they call their own uh, platform segment, where they basically, uh, your Netstar, uh, Tracker, your FinTech business, your health tech switch, those businesses are essentially, you, they're like toll roads. Uh, people use them regularly and you keep tolling on a monthly basis. So, so those businesses are actually quite uh, 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 meaningful now. They, they, they are over, uh, uh, over $2 billion, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, so it's quite a big business at the moment. Mm, mm. And then, uh, Kwabe, I mean, just as we wrap up, uh, I guess uh, we've discussed this in some length on this particular show, Triple PFA, Constitutional Court judgment, effectively suspending preference on procurement. But um, I guess seeing the different reactions from SOCs and others who have re- received and applied for exemptions and those, I guess, that might not have, uh, it seems uh, we shouldn't really see this as saying you can't sort of procure in a way that gives preference to certain categories or in a way that, I guess, front loads transformation. Because it seems others are doing it, while at Transnet they're saying, we've suspended any preference. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted a bit because I'm asking a question to myself. Is transformation going backwards in, in the country now? Uh, and we know that there has been issues around transformation. Is it, is it the transformation that is the, the issue or is it the implementation? And I think it's the implementation. So I understand where the constitutional court comes from, uh, but certainly the suspensions, I think, are, are going to be, uh, create some, some more challenges in the, in the economy. How, how so, Kwabe? I think I think there are smaller businesses that are transformed, and uh, and many other businesses that have been gearing up. I mean, over the years it's been oh, like transformed, mm. transformed. Now that they are transformed, and then you don't get uh, uh, support uh, in a way. I think I think that's going to be a challenge, but it, it could also be good to help uh, those that are in the transformed businesses to sharpen their pencils, because sometimes transformation was just meant that you almost guaranteed to get a deal and doesn't matter at what price. And I think that's where the transformation was implemented badly. But certainly where competitive pricing exists, I do think that transformation should still be preferred. Otherwise, we will end up with a a shrinking transformed sector in the in the economy mm, mm, mm. yeah and i guess uh, it can only get more difficult from here onwards Kwabe, let's be, leave it be, there because I, uh, mm. if i may add i mean yeah, yeah. There, there is one thing that we have to realize uh, that transformation has been a grass purchase for many yes. economic participants yes. right mm. so the, the state entities were an area where transformation was actually being supported, or at least uh, to say, if you are historically untransformed, transform and then mm, you can participate. Sure. And that supported a whole lot of uh, uh, economic transformation. And if we suspend it, I think it would have an impact even in terms of the, the broader economy because, mm. well, uh, the state entities no longer have to, yeah, to yeah. comply. Grab it. What? 
We'll have to leave it here, my brother. It's so unfortunate because I think you're spot on. And this is a significant reversal. And we'll certainly pick it up uh, again. Thank you very much for your time. Look at you, Tejo. Saturday morning brunching with your crew.